Hey, we're in Colossians 1, Colossians chapter 1. If you would turn there, we're starting a new book of the Bible today, walking through this. Let me just kind of explain a couple of things. Um, as you guys saw, when you guys walked in, did you guys see the banner that said Colossians, right? Right here, like you couldn't miss it. Uh, that's the whole book of Colossians. Um, and it's so funny, I laughed because I came out, like, and we just had people, you're like, hey, highlight something, you know, write something in the margins if you want. I was laughing because I, I don't know if you saw this, but I saw highlighted one of the first things, and I don't know if it changed, but one of the first things was husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And yet the wives part wasn't highlighted. So I know I already saw the ladies, I'm like, I'm going to highlight this part, like the husband part. Um, but I love that. Here's, here's why we're doing that. Um, so we this year thought, you know, we want to emphasize and focus on and um, really just be people of the word. The theme for us as a church this year, this might sound strange, but just like the emphasis came out of Colossians, it's Colossians 3.16, where he says, let the word, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Um, if there's something we want to impart or have you walk away with, um, is that we would be just people of the word. There's something about when you know someone who just loves and consumes the word of God, and like their every response and go-to is just going back to scripture. There's something so beautiful about that. And so this idea of let the word of just Jesus dwell in us beautifully, richly, um, our hope is that that would happen is that you so have the word written on your heart that when you go through something or something comes up, your response is just running to Jesus, running to scripture, that he's actually shined light on that area of life that maybe you're walking through. And so let me explain for Colossians. Colossians is basically this idea, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but the reason why we're doing this, not just because of the theme verse, but the reason why we're doing this is Paul is looking to, uh, to speak to a bunch of people in this city and saying, hey, Jesus needs to be preeminent overall. Um, he has all of the authority. A anything and everything you need is found in him. There's a couple of issues Paul's addressing in this book, which we'll, we'll get to. But Paul's basically saying, you have a high view of Jesus, but it needs to be higher. Jesus is not prominent, he is preeminent. I think we're going to get to one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture next week. I know it's Labor Day weekend. Do not miss next week. It's just a powerful passage. But here's the idea. Um, the, the church of Colos, what they're walking through, the issues they're facing, I think has some very similar dynamics for our church in our modern world today. So I want to look at that. I think that um, it's like, yes, you can love Jesus, right? I can love Jesus, but is he truly Lord of all? Is he truly preeminent? Does he have the first place in your life and in my life? There's something really powerful about Paul's writing to this church. I almost want to say this too. I think some of you might struggle with this book. Um, we just went through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and it's a lot of like historical narrative walking through stories. I think the reason why a lot of us do like that is we're reading these stories and like we're pulling from them and we're kind of taking our application, um, which is great. But this is more, this letter is was called an epistle. It's more doctrinal. It's more, here's how to live. It's not like open to interpretation. Like, well, I think this story means this. It's like, no, here's how to live. And so there's something that does to us, kind of shakes us up a little bit. It kind of, it's a, it, the word is called like a mirror. Like when you look at it, you go, oh, here's what I should look like. Here's how I should live. And is my life reflecting that? There's just something I think that happens when you go through a New Testament book. So um, you guys know this. I don't think it's just about, um, I love walking through books of the Bible, 
but my hope is that it'd be so much more than um, I sound like a commentary where we read a verse, talk about it, read a verse, talk about it. My prayer is that the Spirit of God would do a work in our church here in South Florida like he did in the church of Coloss. My hope and prayer is that this would not just be some old text for a church that existed a couple thousand years ago, but the Word of God is living and powerful, and I believe that the things they faced then we still face today, but maybe wrapped in a different package. And so I'm like, Lord, just would you accomplish in us what you wanted to accomplish in them? Like, do in us what you wanted to do in them. So um, my hope today is, and whenever you start a book, there's a lot of usually introduction. It's a lot of Paul kind of addressing some things. Uh, but here's the main idea that Paul is saying to them right away. He's saying, I've heard about you. You guys are incredible people. You have grown so much. Don't stop growing. So we're going to read Colossians 1, verse 1 through 14. He says, you've grown. Don't stop growing. The title today is simply, Don't Stop Growing. You've grown. Awesome. But don't stop growing. There's still more maturity that Jesus wants to produce in us as his followers. Amen? So why don't we read Colossians 1, verse 1 through 14, and then we'll pray and look at it more in depth. Cool? You guys ready? All right, let's do it. Colossians 1, verse 1. Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always, verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. By the way, get used to Paul talking in really long sentences. So we got to break that down a little bit. Verse 9. So he says, we're, we're praising God for you. Now we're praying for you, verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share and the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Everyone says amen. Why don't we pray and just um, look at this. It's kind of overwhelming, by the way, when you come to text like this. Sometimes the best thing we can do is just read it and get out of the way. It's almost like this rose, and I'm like, now let's dissect the rose. And you're like, no, the rose is better left alone. There's something about just reading the word and just taking it in. And um, this is a powerful text, very lengthy, you know, words from Paul. And I just want to do our best to say, Holy Spirit, just take it and, and produce that deep into our souls. Can we do that? Father, we just want to thank you so much again for your word. We thank you that you have not left us in the dark, that you've actually brought us out of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of your love. Father, I just ask that um, 
we would not just hear these things, but that we would believe them, that Holy Spirit, you would take them and produce much fruit in us individually and collectively. Jesus, I do want to thank you just for what you did then, but what you're doing today. Thank you for the body here. Thank you for the growth we've seen in just individual lives and maturity. But Lord, we just pray for, we ask for more just growth, that we grow in the knowledge of your will. We'd walk worthy of the calling, that we would bear fruit, that we'd grow in our knowledge of you, that we'd grow in our love for one another. Everything said here, Jesus, we ask that um, you would help us slow it down and just take it in. We just want to thank you, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. Um, you know, I, I get a lot of comments these days uh, directed towards our kids where, you know, they say, oh, your, your kids are getting so big. And it's weird when you're with them all the time, it's hard to notice. You know, as a parent, you're like, oh, are they? I don't know. <laughs> like, I've seen them every day. But when people are like, I haven't seen them in a while, or it's been a minute, or they're getting so big, and you're like, oh, I guess they are. And I, the, the funny thing to me is when, sometimes when you're so, so close to it, you don't always see it. I think also spiritually speaking, that is very true. It's so cool to watch some of you growing in your faith and how God is using you. And sometimes like, hey, that person's really changed. You're like, have they? Like, oh, I guess so. Like, it's so cool when you see that. You don't, you don't always see it right away. It's a beautiful thing. You know, it, it is funny. I think as a, a parent, I, I talked to my four-year-old, my eight-year-old about this, but I love I loved where my daughter's like, she's four. She's so fun. And she knows this. I'm like, Kinsley, can I just freeze you right now at four? I'm like, I don't want you to turn five. And she's like, Dad, I'm going to turn five one day. And I like go, no. And she's like, ha, 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 then six. I'm like, no. And she's like, then seven. Like, she gets a kick out of it. But she like, likes to like, tell me she's getting older, and I like to pretend. Like, no, that's not going to happen. And it's, it's funny because like, I love this stage, but obviously I want to see them grow. I want to see them mature. You know, it's, it's fun to watch my one-year-old who does one-year-old things. And it's like, oh, I forgot that. Like, it's so fun to watch him, like, throw food and put it in his hair or whatever. It's not that fun, actually. But when you see him do that and we laugh, like, that's so cute. He has spaghetti in his hair. And my daughter's like, I have spaghetti in my hair. And you're like, it's not that cute, you know? <laughs> like, it's good at one, not at four, not at eight. You know, if they're doing that, like, Dad, I'm 25. Look at the spaghetti in my hair. You're like, that's terrible. Like, obviously, you want there to be growth. You want there to be maturity. There really is something sweet. You know, this summer for us as a family, just getting away, and every summer just trying to take that vacation, of like, get away. And you really want to see growth. You really want to make the most of, like, that summer. And, like, okay, not just growing physically. Are you growing? And there's certain things and hang-ups and for us. Like, it's cool to celebrate that or, or you know, look at that in our family. Uh, my son, if whatever everyone, is, like, the scaredy cat of the three kids. He's, the, I don't know, he's the firstborn. He's just the scaredy cat. My daughter's like, yo, I'm going to go climb Mount Everest and jump off it and hang glide. I don't know. She just has a braveness to her. Uh, but my son this summer is so cool. We took him to, like, an indoor pool thing, and there was, like, a high dive on this indoor pool. And uh, he went to, he's like, hey, I want to jump off that. And we're like, okay. And he jumped off the little first high dive. He thinks like 10-ish feet. But good, dude, that was amazing. Like, that was pretty good. And then I, I jumped off the second one. I, can, I couldn't do the third. Um, I, w- I went to the second one, and I looked this up. It is 25 feet. And, you know, you feel that a little bit. You know, I don't know. Just my mind looking down now. I'm a little older. It's weird, like 25 feet. My son's like, I want to do that. And my wife and I are like, there's no way. He's like, yeah, I want to do it. We're like, you're, the, you're a scary cat. Like, we're not saying that. Though. But, you know, like, there's no way. And he's like, I want to do it. So he goes up there, and he, just, he went for it. He jumped off the 25-foot platform. And I know it sounds so silly, but for us, we're like, this is growth. You know, like, because in his mind, like, there's, some, there's been different fears that have kept him back from experiences. As a parent, you just want to see, like, those fears unlocked. And you want to see them, like, take a risk. And we're like, when he did it, like, obviously, we freaked out. And we celebrated. And then he did it again, and he hurt his feet the second time. He's like, I, I think I'm good. We're like, yeah, you're good. You did a good job. 
I know it's you know it's funny. He's he's so like rail thin. Like when he hits the water, you're like is he even gonna break through the water? Like is he just gonna like break? He's just so thin. But he's like, I think I'm good now. Twice. We're like that's that's enough. That's good. And it's just fun. Like even watching another dad there, his daughter around the same age, eight or nine, she jumped off the highest platform and like she was up there for like an, like 40 minutes, like on the edge, just like kind of about to do it, not gonna go. And everyone's like, come on, you can do it. And she finally did it. And just seeing that even excitement in the other dad. It's like my daughter did something she's afraid of, and she took a step, and just seeing those little growth steps. Now, that might seem minor. Um, for other examples, for us, you know, my wife this weekend uh, got away for a couple nights with some good ladies. So I, I had, you know, the kids for two nights, Thursday and Friday night, three kids. I'm like, you sure I want the baby? Are you sure? Like, you know, and it was a lot. But it, it was so sweet to, honestly, even see my son, like, make his sister breakfast and be kind to her. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Like when you see those, and I'm bringing this up because when you see those signs of growth, there's nothing more you want. Because you're like, are they ever going to change? Is there ever going to be growth? Like is this ever going to look different? Sometimes you feel like you're stuck in it and you're like, what? will this change ever happen? And I think spiritually speaking, this is so important. Whether it's your life, people maybe you love and are just pouring into, they're going back to the same old thing and you're like, are they ever going to grow? Or maybe you feel stuck, am I ever going to grow? Maybe it's hard to notice because you're so close to it. You're so close to it. You don't see the change. You don't see the growth. You don't see the depth. I want to say there's something so beautiful when you get to participate in that with someone else. You're like, dude, I finally saw you be very generous for the first time or be very kind or loving. Or you, you normally would respond this way. When you see growth, it's, it's so beautiful. Like, again, as a parent, I want to see my kids grow. As a pastor, I want to see our church grow. Not numerically. I want to see us grow in our faith in the knowledge of God's will, in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. There's something so beautiful when you go, oh my gosh, look at they're taking a risk for the kingdom of God. This selfish person is no longer being selfish. This ungenerous person is finally being generous. Whatever it is, like, oh my, it's so beautiful when you finally start to see growth happening. And again, maybe we don't always see it because we're so close to it. Paul is writing to the Colossians and he's saying, guys, I've heard about your growth. You have grown. You're bearing fruit. In verse 3 through 8, just so you know, he's basically praising God for their growth. And then verse 9 uh, through 14, he's praying for more growth. And that's such like a dad's heart. I'm like, awesome, you've grown. Keep going. You've grown, but you still have more growth to do. And I, I think that's kind of how I'm viewing today um, and how I view this text for our heart, for, for us today. Don't stop growing. Don't stop growing. You've grown. Don't stop growing. Keep growing in Jesus, in Christ, in the gospel. Don't stop bearing fruit. Keep growing. Keep going and keep growing in your faith. And so here's what I want to do. The two points today, we'll, I'll break this down a little bit more, but number one is this. He's praising God for their growth, and then he's praying for more growth. All right, that's a simple way of putting it. So he's praising God for the growth. He's praying for more growth, but it's not just that. We'll kind of dissect this a little bit, look at it. But there's something about that that I want to take away from. Um, and again, it's more of the introduction. Whenever you start an epistle, it's like that intro. It's here's what's going on. Here's what I've heard. Good job. Let me address this guy who's been a big part of this. And it's kind of those opening thoughts. But you could see the theme is just like you've matured, but keep maturing. Don't stop maturing. Now, before we break down these points, um, I always do this for any new book of the Bible. I think it's important. We call it, we call it like the triple A's of a new book. Everyone say triple A. Triple A, author, audience, agenda. Author, audience, agenda. It helps us just understand um, who is the author, what's going on with him, who is he writing to, and, and what's the point. So author, audience, agenda. Let's look at the first one, author. Uh, obviously, it's Paul. We know Paul. Paul wasn't always Paul. Paul was once Saul. Saul was once a guy who hated Christians, wanted to destroy Christians, definitely did not want to see Christians growing in any way. And now he becomes Paul. 
Jesus radically grabbed hold of his life, and he's like, I used to persecute the church. Now that's all I want to see is the church grow. Numerically, internally, I just want to see them grow in every way possible. Paul goes from like trying to end the church to trying to grow the church. I love Paul's conversion story. I mean, even just historically speaking, this guy revolutionized and changed the Western world as we know it. The gospel went west. It went into Philippi. It started spreading into more and more towns and cities in Asia. God radically used Paul to change the world, history, literature as we know it. I'm very thankful for this guy and what God did with him. But here's the, why I'm bringing all this up. When Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians, he actually wrote it from prison. A lot of letters were prison epistles. Paul wrote a lot of books of the Bible from prison. Now, if you think about that, that would change things, right? If I'm in prison and I'm not with you, I'd probably kind of change how I'd write. Not just change how I'd write, but I'd probably be like, I have the most important things in the forefront of my mind. I love this book because if you want to break it down in a big picture, chapter one and two is more doctrinal. Chapter three and four is more practical. So a lot of times Paul does do this in his writings. It's more of like, here's who God is. Here's who you are. Now, here's how to live in light of that. So it's like, he's look, looking at the doctrine. This is Jesus. Next week, it's one of the most profound actual, it's like a poem, actually. It's one of the most profound writings, poems about Jesus, I think, ever written. It's incredible. He's like, he holds Jesus up in the highest possible position. And then he goes, here's who Jesus is. In light of who Jesus is, here's who's, who you are, and here's how you're to live. So three and four get more practical. Now, Paul's writing this from prison, and again, I love this, because people are like, um, we're so sick of this Christian thing. Let's take one of their leaders, let's put them in prison, so let's make up, you know, some faulty charges, throw them in prison. And here's what he basically writes in 2 Timothy 2 from prison. I love this. He says, I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. What a beautiful thought. You can chain me up all you want, but the word of God will never be chained. The word of God will never be chained. That's why I view Colossians. It's like, I'm in prison, but you can never imprison the Bible. You can never chain it up. You can never lock it down. It's going to spread. In fact, that's usually when it spreads faster. The word of God cannot be chained. So we have the author writing from prison. And now this is important. The audience, who is he writing to? Uh, to Colossae. Now, um, this would be in modern-day Turkey. Uh, if you actually look at the seven churches of Revelation that Jesus speaks to, Colossae is pretty close to that area. It didn't make, one of the, make the list. There's different rumors or ideas about that. Uh, Colossae most likely was destroyed in an earthquake uh, before even that was written in Revelation. But the idea was it wasn't that important of a city or town, but God was doing something very important among them. So when I, I actually want to point this out. Um, there's a guy named Epaphras. We just read about him. Everyone say Epaphras. Great name. Um, sometimes these guys don't get enough credit. We'll like pass over them pretty quickly. Epaphras was a guy who seemed to get saved actually in Acts 19 when Paul was preaching at Ephesus. Epaphras hears the gospel, believes, goes back to Colossae where he's from. Paul will tell us later at the end of the chapter in Colossians 4. He'll tell us he goes back to his home, and he said it even here. He goes back to them. And basically God uses this guy who's not an apostle, who doesn't really have any title associated with him, and God uses him to start a church in Colossae. That's Colossians. I love this. God just used an average Joe in our, in our mind to birth a church and to grow them in their faith. He's going back to his home. And he's like, I have a heart for my home. What God did in my heart in Ephesus, which is like only 125 miles away, what God did in my heart in Ephesus, I need to bring it back home. What a beautiful thought. I love that God's like, you know what? You don't have to have a title for me to use you. I just think like, he's like our beloved brother, our faithful witness, Epaphras. The way he describes him is so cool. Is he the pastor? Maybe, maybe not. We don't even know. 
He's just a guy that God used to like do a work. So Epaphras actually visits Paul in prison. He's telling about his home, Colossians. He's like, hey, um, I love my home, but here's some problems that are coming up. There are some issues that are happening. So maybe you've heard of this, maybe not. It's totally fine. There's something called the Colossian heresy or the Colossae heresy, the Colossian heresy. Um, here's the idea. There were certain belief systems going on and kind of infiltrated the church, whether it's in Galatia or Colossae. There were certain thoughts or practices or beliefs that were kind of going into the church and it was corrupting the church. So the Colossae heresy, I want to make it as simple as I can. There seemed to be two different kind of groups or thinkings that went into the church and really affected the church. Um, maybe you've heard of like the Gnostics or Gnosticism. And then with the other group, we primarily call the Judaizers. So here's the idea. There seemed to be kind of two different camps being like, this is amazing. Go God is doing something incredible. But the Gnostics are going, but can I actually tell you there is a way to have like a deeper knowledge of the things of God, that you're only accessing part of it? And actually, do you know that Jesus wasn't a physical person, but a spirit? When he rose again, it was a spiritual resurrection, not a physical resurrection. Um, Gnostics were interesting. The word Gnostic comes from the word um, gnosko, which means to know. And so they're almost acting like, hey, we, we have some knowledge that you don't have get close to us, and like you will be in the inner circle. It was cult-like in that. Uh, the Gnostics viewed material as bad, spiritual as good. There's certain issues that came with that. Some Gnostics, not all, but some Gnostic thought goes along the ideas of, well, since physical is kind of irrelevant and spiritual is good, it doesn't really matter what you do with your body or how you live, because that's the physical. So if you want to sleep with whoever you want to sleep with, if you want to do whatever you want to do, it doesn't matter that God or the spirit that emanations from God care about the spiritual things. So it was a way for them to say physical doesn't really matter, spiritual matters, so go ahead and do whatever you want with this physical body of yours. It's a way for them to kind of indulge in sin, if you're tracking with me. Now, Gnosticism also kind of had this blend of syncretism, meaning I'm going to borrow from this faith and that faith and this faith and kind of just say, hey, it, it kind of, don't we all believe the same thing really here? I mean, you kind of have part of the truth, they have part of the truth, it's all the same thing. So you see within Gnosticism um, a very similar kind of approach to some things in life. Truth was very relative. You know, go ahead and do whatever you want. And they kinda, it kind of played into certain natural desires people had. Well, I kind of do want to do whatever I want. And according to Gnosticism, material doesn't really matter, so let me do whatever I want. So you kind of see how it played off of that. Then you had Judaizers, kind of the other extreme. It's like, awesome, you believe in Jesus. That's great. But you also need to keep the fine print of the law. And they'd actually go to different extremes. And Paul in Colossians 2, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but Paul in Colossians 2 kind of like debunks that. He's like, so basically this is a book where he's saying, um, you value Jesus, but you need to value Jesus more. Like you, Jesus is important to you. He's important to the Gnostics. He's important to the Judaizers, but he is not preeminent. And he's basically saying fight for the preeminence of Jesus in everything. And he's also playing off that and saying, and so here's the idea. He's saying, you have a freedom in Christ that maybe you don't know what that even means or looks like. Maybe the word freedom is kind of, you know, askewed to you. Let me show you what it means to be like free in Christ. So I love this because if you're reading this epistle, Paul actually plays off certain words um, that the Gnostics or Judaizers would be using around them. So he talks about the fullness of God. The Gnostics would talk about the fullness of knowledge they have. He's like, no, there's a better fullness. Or the Gnostics, uh, the Gnosticism, he, he used this word epinosis, epinosis. And it's really funny because he'll, he'll talk about, no, no, I actually have like a super, they claim to have knowledge. We have a super knowledge of God. Epinosis just means with knowledge. He's like, they say they know, but we're with it. We, we're with the person who is knowledge, Jesus himself. So whether or not you find this interesting, I do. Um, he's basically calling them out in subtle ways in his language and what he's saying. You guys track with me? Maybe not. 
It's okay. All right, so we have the author, we have the audience, and again, I actually love what Warren Wearsby said about the Gnostics. He said this, Satan is so deceptive. He likes to borrow Christian vocabulary, but he does not use the Christian dictionary. So true. If you've ever ran into a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness, they, they hijack the person of Jesus. They hijack a doctrine that sounds biblical, and then they give you a different definition for the person of Jesus or God, the Trinity. There's always this hijacking, and it's like, let me, I, I'm also, I had Jehovah's Witnesses lock my door, and, uh, and they're like, they, you know, they didn't introduce, hi, I'm a Jehovah's Witness. They just like started talking, and I'm like, are you Jehovah's Witness? They're like, um, yeah, I am. We're Christians. And I'm like, eh, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> it's it's, it's kind of true. It kind of just came out because they hijack. And I do think there's something incredibly, Second John talks about that. There's actually something very dangerous about that. They're bringing to you a different Jesus. It is not the same Jesus. And so Paul is saying, let's get back to Jesus. So why are we doing this book? All that to say, why are we doing this book? Let's get back to the emphasis being on the person of Jesus supremely. How can Jesus be the center we're not uh, anthropocentric. We're not man-centered. We're theocentric. We're God-centered. We want to be focused on the person of Jesus, that he is preeminent and over it all. Are you guys with me? This is so important. So Paul's saying, um, I'm in prison. Here's what's going on, the audience. Now the agenda. I have kind of went over some of the agenda. Like He's addressing these cultural issues. But I want to read this verse, too, because I think here's Paul's heart. Colossians 1, verse 28. Paul says, Jesus, him we proclaim, man. It's about Jesus. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Okay, don't miss this. Paul says that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This is the goal. The goal is to present everyone mature in Christ. It's not enough just to be saved. He's like, I want you to be participators of the kingdom of God. Don't just be like, okay, I made it into the kingdom. I'm saved. He's like, no, grow in the will of God, in the knowledge of God, bearing fruit. So this section, this text is saying, it's great you're saved. It's a really powerful day in a Christian's life when they realize God did not just die for you to save you, but to also have you become a participator in the kingdom of heaven, to walk with him, to enjoy him, to bring others into relationship with him. Not just, okay, I believe in Jesus, therefore I'm not going to hell. It's so, the Christian life has so much more to offer than that. That is beautiful. Thank you, God, that you've set me free from sin, darkness, hell, death. Thank you for that. But he's saying, no, no, I want to present you mature. I, I want there to be more than what you're selling for. So um, the Exchange Church here in South Florida, I do believe the, the whole point of this, and God is saying, like, I want you to stop settling in your faith. Participate. Be about the kingdom. Be about something bigger than you. Like, this is, this is, be mature in Christ. So, going back to our first two points originally. You guys with me, author, audience, agenda, triple A's. Going back to our first two points. He's praising God for their growth, and then he's praying for more growth. So, let's just simply break this down. What is the growth he's seen in them? Why don't we read verse 3? All right, verse 3. Let's read. He says in verse 3, we always, <laughs> I love that, we always thank God. That's impressive. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. I don't know if you see this clearly. It's so cool. Paul, Paul just picks up on some common themes throughout the New Testament. This is the reoccurring trilogy of like attributes Paul picks up on. What does he say? He says, faith Love, hope. Does that sound familiar? 
Remember 1 Corinthians 13? 1 Corinthians 13, 13, Paul's like, continue in these things, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. So I know it says faith, hope, love, and here it's uh, faith, hope, uh, faith, love, hope, but just bear with me. So Paul's basically saying, hey, here's what I want to see. I want to see faith, I want to see hope and love, and I see that in you guys. I think a sign of growing in your faith is, is there, do you actually have genuine faith? Do you have a hope and do you love one another? So I want to break this down. I love what one pastor said, Britt Merrick, he, he puts this up here. He says, faith is the soul looking upward to God. Faith is the soul looking upward to God. I'm looking to God in faith. I'm trusting in him. I'm believing in him. Love looks outward to others. I want to love, so I'm vertically, horizontally, and I love this idea of hope anticipates the future. So hope, or I actually skip to the next slide, my bad. Hope looks forward to the future. So faith is a soul looking upward. Love looks outward. Hope looks forward. Upward, outward, forward. Faith, hope, love. Faith, love, hope. I love that. I'm looking upward, I'm looking outward, and I'm looking into the future forward. He's like, this is what you have. You have this hope that is laid up for you in heaven. You get it, you guys. You have faith in Jesus. You love each other. You actually care about what matters in eternity and the treasure for you that's stored up in heaven. Another way to put it, and I kind of read that, but he says, faith rests on the past work of Christ. Love works in the present. Hope anticipates the future. Again, so past, present, future. Faith rests on the past work of Christ. By faith, think about this. By faith, we look back at the cross, what Jesus did for us. So faith, you're looking back at the past, Love is in the present, and hope anticipates the future. And he's like, this is what you need. I need to look back. I need to live well in the moment. I need to have a hope for what's ahead. That is so cool. He's like, I care about the past, the present, the future, faith, hope, love. It, it meets all of those needs. It's, it's unbelievable to me to think, though, um, Paul is basically saying maturity in Christ looks like faith, hope, and love. It's always bizarre to me when I meet a Christian who's been walking with Jesus for 50 years, like 40, 50 years, like amazing. And if you see them, not, that's not always the case, but when you meet a few that are just like miserable, you're like, how have you been walking with Jesus for 40, 50 years? Like, you're so unloving, you're so unkind. Like, how is that even, so is that even possible? Probably not. The point is like maturity, like growth, true growth means you're going to be growing in love, growing in your faith, growing in your hope. Like true growth looks like love. You, if you're going to be growing in your faith, there's going to be love. You will never grow. If, if there's not love in your life, that's not growth. Growth in the faith always looks like love for, for the other. I think the most mature Christians I've ever been around are the people who have this insane love for people who live differently, who people who look differently, talk differently, act differently. Now, love does not mean this like passive sort of, um, I accept and affirm every lifestyle decision by no means. But this love says, no, I still see their souls an image bearer of God. God loves them. God cares for them. God also wants to rescue and redeem them. I still love them. I'm not going to be dismissive about them and say, well, God would never save them. We, they've gone too far off the path. Like th that dismissive spirit that sometimes you hear from Christians like, I don't know. It'd be a miracle if they ever got saved. It's like, yes, that's the whole point. It's always a miracle when anyone gets saved even you. And it's, it's crazy how we're so quick to like dismiss groups of people or individuals of people. And I think when you're around Christians who are like, I, I know um, their lifestyle or what they're doing might not be something I would do, but I love them. God loves them. God wants to rescue and redeem them. Just like he called me out of darkness into his marvelous light, he wants to call them out of darkness into his marvelous light. Um, I'm, th I'm so thankful that God did not look at me and say, uh, that person, I don't know. I'm so thankful that God pursued me and loved me, so let's pursue them and love them. I, I I'll say this. Paul's like, you've grown in faith, hope, and love, and he s stresses this again later, but he's basically saying that your love in the Spirit is so beautiful. You get it. You're maturing. Listen, I really want to stress this. Um, what does it look like to grow in your faith? It looks like this. You will love people. If you are growing your faith, you're, you're going to be a loving person. 
Uh, if you're not a loving person, you're not growing in your faith. The book of 1 John is literally only and all about that. How can you say you love God who you've not seen and hate your brother whom you have seen? If you love God, you're going to love others. It just it goes hand in hand. You cannot say you love God and hate your brother. You just can't. So Paul is like stressing this and emphasizing this. He's talking about this love, and he says, uh, this hope laid up for you in heaven. I just had to point this out because this word laid up for you in heaven. Um, I don't know. I, sorry, I almost went to a basketball analogy, but I'm not going to do that. Laid up. Anyways, uh, laid up means preservation without the possibility of loss. Hear that phrase. Preservation without the possibility of loss. It is, it, it's actually this word that communicates the idea of your, your treasure is saved in heaven. Like, it means it's not going anywhere. I just love what Jesus says, what Paul shows us over and over again. He goes, hey, if you believe in me, you're in my hand, and I'm in my Father's hand. Um, no one's snatching you out. What God has in store for those who love him, they're not going to take it away. Moth, rust cannot destroy. What, what is there is not going to be taken away. There's such this, Paul uses, and just get ready for this, Paul uses such confident, secure language about our positions in heaven throughout every epistle, and I find that so beautiful. It is so free, and it's not like, well, okay, t- I had a bad day. Does, does God love me today? Y- yes. Yes. My wife and I, I love her. We're married. We have a bad days. It's like, am I on the fence? Is she still going to be married to me tomorrow? Like, yes. It's just, God's like, I, I'm trying to, Paul uses this language so often to be like, you're, it's so confident what you have in Christ. It's laid up. It's saved. There's no possibility of loss what's stored up for you in heaven because it's never been based about your work. It's been based about Jesus's work for you on your behalf. And that is saved, that is stored, that is secure for you in heaven. Now, in light of that, keep bearing fruit. In light of that, keep loving and abide. But the beautiful thing is that he uses language so often in the New Testament that speaks of ultimate security. There's nothing like having ultimate security knowing what God has for you. It's laid up for you. It's stored for you in heaven. And then we'll keep going, but let's look at verse five. Again, and it's so hard to break this down because Paul, maybe I'm winded, but Paul's winded, man. He just speaks in like long sentences. There's like no periods. Like, Paul, where are you going? So look at verse five. Verse five, Paul says, of this, of what we're talking about, of this, you've heard before in the world of the truth, the gospel. He says, which has come uh, to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. I love this. Paul's like, you've heard this gospel, and it's, it's gone out to every corner of the world. That's amazing, by the way. Speaking of the Roman Empire, and you think about like the all roads lead to Rome and where Paul was writing in, it was kind of like that known Roman Empire. He's like, the gospel's going out, man. It's going out, and you've heard it, and you believed, and it's bearing fruit in you and in others. So he's acknowledging that there's bearing fruit. He's acknowledging what's happening. And I have to slow down and talk about this, because this is like Paul introduces, obviously, here right away, this idea of the gospel. Um, you, you and I hear this word a lot. It's thrown out a lot. I see it a lot. I might assume a lot with that. And for forgive me. Um, the gospel is so beautiful. Let me just kind of break this down. Sometimes early on in, in the Christian church, maybe this happens to you, happened to me, you think the gospel is something I believed on when I first got saved, and then I move on to bigger and better things. Uh, no. The gospel is everything. <laughs> the, the gospel, I love how Tim Keller says it, the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian faith. The gospel is the A to Z. It's not like you ever graduate the gospel. Like, oh, yes, I believe on Jesus, and I accept what he did for me, and then I want to move on to other things. Like, there's no, everything's in that. J.D. Greer, a pastor, always says this. He says, uh, the gospel is not just the diving board, it's the pool. All right, it's not like the diving board into the Christian faith. The gospel, the diving board. He's like, it's the pool. You're swimming in it. It's everything. 
You don't graduate the gospel. The gospel is not good advice on how to live. It's good news on what God did for you and for me. And it's this idea that you need to live in that and work on that. And any fruit you bear stems from this idea that it's Jesus already paid it all. He, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Okay, so Jesus did it. And it, by God's grace, I get to receive that and accept that. And by God's grace, I get to now work that out. So it's what Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So God worked this thing in us. You're saved, you're born again, your inheritance is in heaven, everything you need is found in Jesus. Now walk that out, work that out, not to be saved, but because you already are saved. And so he's saying, you've heard this gospel, it's so beautiful. Uh, it's gone out to all of the world. I think one of the funnest things, and if you've, I hope that you guys have experienced this, it's so cool meeting Christians locally. It's so cool meeting Christians nationally. It's so cool meeting Christians internationally. It's, it's the most beautiful thing to me when I've sat down with people who like, they, and it's so sad. It's always them meeting me in, in English because I can never, <laughs> I don't know any other language. But these people from different parts of the globe, like talking, I remember like there's different Serbian Christians who are talking about their love for Jesus. And I'm like, wait, you love Jesus too here in Serbia? Like, of course, and like, you, know, you, you know they do. But once you meet them, you're like, that's beautiful. I remember going to Israel and just seeing like a, a, a tourist group of like Christians from China and they're just like weeping at the garden tomb. And that he's talking to them or listening, and you're like, hear their love for Jesus at the garden tomb. You're like, that's so beautiful. You know, meeting Christians really all over the globe, going to El Salvador, going to Guatemala, and you're meeting these Christians. You're like, wait, what I have and what you have is it. Like, we share this thing in common, and it's so beautiful. And it's crazy how, like, they can describe their moments with Jesus and what God produced and did in them. And I'm like, that sounds like me, but you live in a different part of the globe. And I just love, like, there's this commonality and beautiful thing that God does across the globe. Paul says this in verse 5, um, you've heard the gospel. It's gone out. It's going out into the world. It's bearing fruit. Let it continue to bear fruit. The whole idea is this. Um, the gospel bears fruit in our lives every day. That growth is rooted in the gospel. You will never grow, ever. I, I, you cannot grow or mature in Christ if it's not based and rooted in the gospel of Jesus and what he's done for you. I've seen people become religious, and they're doing things, but that is not growth, Growth is when you're so rooted in who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And the love you have for others is because the love God has shown to you and forgiven you of. And how can you not love? So it's not like masking or like putting on religiosity to appear to be good. It's like Jesus has done this deep work in your heart that now it's going to be a natural outflowing of, of grace, of the gospel. So gospel, the gospel is what always leads to growth. There will never be growth if you're not rooted in the gospel. You can become religious, but it won't be true maturity, true growth has to be rooted in the gospel. You guys track with me? This is what Paul is saying, this growth that you've seen. We'll keep going. Verse 7. Uh, so he, he says, verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister on, on our behalf and has made, to, made known to us your love in the Spirit. I just want to put this out really quickly before we move on. Um, your love in the Spirit. This is the only time the word Spirit is mentioned or the Spirit is mentioned in Colossians. So this is kind of bizarre for Paul's writings. He mentions the Holy Spirit here and that's it. You will not see the, the a reference to the Holy Spirit in Colossians. It does not mean he's not important. I love it. The, the Holy Spirit's work is to point to Jesus. The Holy Spirit even said that. He was, I'm going to testify. Jesus said, he, the Holy Spirit, will testify of me. 
So when you read Colossians, it's like people sometimes in commentaries are like, why don't we see more of the Spirit be mentioned? Because this is just so flooded with the person of Jesus, which I believe pleases the Spirit, because the Spirit is here to testify or lift up Jesus. And so anyways, the only time uh, he's mentioned is also around this idea of love. He's like, your love in the Spirit. So again, this idea of love is not, I'm putting on this fake mask and smiling when I really hate your guts. No, this love in the Spirit is like, God has done a deep work in me. I truly love you. I could not explain this. The only way to explain this is if God has done something in me. Around 17 years old, when I really, like, I believe got saved around that age, of like, okay, God, I'm all in. I'm all yours. I would say one of the first things I've noticed in my life that changed was people who I despised. I couldn't even be in the same room as them. I could never look in the eyes. I'm starting to pray for them. I'm praying blessings over them. I see them. And I'm like giving them a hug, and they're like, are you okay? I'm like, I don't know. Jesus did something, in me. and it's just something that that's what God does initially, and he's like, guys, you've done it. You've grown. You're loving. I love it, but here's his point. You've grown, but you're not done growing. This is what Paul says actually to the Thessalonians, and I want to read this, and we'll move on to point number two, but Paul says this to the Thessalonians. Listen to this. I love this. He goes, concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, and indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. I love this. He's like, Guys, I can't even, it's pointless for me to write to you about love. By the way, I could preach to my, so I'm blue in the face about love. It does not matter. Like, love is something that God does in you alone with him. I just so believe, God's like doing something privately, like this person, whatever, this thing. This is something the Holy Spirit does when you're alone with him. Just watch God grow. He's like, he's like, you have no need for me to write to you. God himself has taught you about love. And he goes, and you've done that. But I'm, I'm urging you, I'm begging you, do it more and more. How cool is that? He's like, good job, guys. You love each other keep loving each other more. No one's ever been like that person. They just love too much. I've never met anyone who like loves too much. You're like, it's so cool. Like when you see someone loving, you're like, that's a, it's a beautiful thing. He's like, do it more and more. So he's praising them for the growth. We'll go to number two is this. Now he's praying for more growth and we'll wrap it up soon. But look at verse nine. Verse nine, here's what he says. Verse nine, he says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Okay, this is, what, again, Paul's lengthy, no periods, but we're going to do our best to break this down. Paul is saying, we're praising God for you, and now we're praying for you. We're praying for you. We're praying for growth. This is so important, guys. We cannot miss this. Notice how Paul defines growth. Five things I want to like, break down, we'll put up here. He's praying that they would know God's will, they'd walk in a way that pleases God, that they would bear fruit, increase in the knowledge of God, and be strengthened with his power in order to have patience with joy. All right, so this is what he's praying. Um, this morning, looking through my notes again, trying to, you know, just be ready, talk to you guys. A part of me is going, this is a prayer list for parents to their kids. This is a, pa- a prayer list for pastor to his people. This is a prayer for us, for each other, your friend group. How, how beautiful. He's like, you know what? This is what maturity in Christ looks like, that they would grow in the knowledge of God, that they'd grow in his will, that they would know his will, they'd walk worthy of his will, that they'd bear fruit, um, that they'd know him, that they'd actually get to a place in life they can have patience with joy. It's such a beautiful thing when you see Christians, again, not just being saved, not just saying, okay, status quo, check, but like actual maturity in Christ to the place where you go, they can be suffering, yet they have patience with joy. That phrase just jumped out at me, like, in my heart. I'm like, I'm not, 
if I am patient, if I am, it's not with joy. <laughs> and it's like this idea of patience with joy and maturity in Christ looks like that, that though you're in prison, like Paul and Silas, you're singing hymns and the prison gates open. You're like, wow, we're just worshiping. Like that soul that has been redefined or re-revolutionized re- in a way where God's done something beautiful in you. So let's just break this down briefly, briefly. He says, I want you to know God's will. Um, this is something I've talked to many of you about, and I know maybe you struggle. I struggle with this idea for a long time, knowing God's will. What is God's will? I, I want to speak very um, a big picture for a second. I'm very thankful that God does reveal to us his will throughout scriptures. Whenever, please listen closely, whenever you come across a passage that says this is the will of God, that you offer your body as a living sacrifice, pay att- like the idea is like pay attention to Romans 12, 1 and 2. Okay, God's will, my body and my life is his. Okay. God's will is that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. Wow. God's will is that none should burn and suffer in hell away from him forever, but all should come to repentance. Wow. Okay. That's God's will. What's God's will? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God uh, concerning Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. This is crazy. When you actually hear God's will, and the reason why I'm throwing these verses out here, and I actually put up 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 21, I want you to hear this. I actually recently was talking to some of you, and you're like, I just want to know God's will for my life. Here's the thing I think is so important. I get what your question is. I know what you mean. I've had the same question. I want to know God's will for certain circumstances. Like, God, should I do this? Should I not? Should we use money in this way? Should we not? Should we fill in the blank? I get that. I get that. Please hear me out. I believe many Christians today want to know God's will for specific moments, and yet they're not actually obeying God's will on the big things that matter to God. So that God's will, God's will is that you would give your life fully to him. Don't ask if you should move to that state if you're not giving your life fully to him. God's will, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, is that you would live a pure life to Jesus, that you'd not give your body over to sexual exploitation for others' use or your use. God's will is you say, my body is yours. Do what you want with it. My, your, God, your will is for me to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, everything of things. Don't quench the spirit. Meaning, be in tune with you, God. Walk closely, hand in hand with you. Okay, so before you pray, should I move here? Should I date them? Should I do that? It does not matter if you're not doing God's will on the verses you already know. I think this is what really kind of gets me. It's like, you're asking a great question, but that's question number seven on the list, and you're not even obeying question number one. God's will is for you to say, God, here is my body. Here is my life. It's set apart wholly for you, God. I'm yours. So stop asking God if that person should be your boyfriend or girlfriend or if you should move there or do that. It does not matter if you're not obeying God in the primary things. It does not matter. You've you got to understand this. I think this is so key. It is a beautiful day when you realize, I'm going to do the will of God in, the, in everything he tells me. So find the passages. Find Romans 12, 2 Peter 3, 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. Find the passages where it says, this is the will of God. Seek the Lord on that. I want to do that, live that out, and then you can get to the point where, like, okay, God, should I date them? Should I move there? Should I? Like, are you guys track with me? We get this so out of order. We get this so out of order. I love that your heart is like, want to please God and walk with God. So please him and do the things you already get, he already gave you and me to do. Don't go on to step number two without doing step one. Are you guys actually tracking with me? <laughs> because I love this. Because even as an adult, I can be guilty of this. It's like, God, I want this and I want to do that. Will you give me your wisdom and advice? And, be? and it's like, hey, you haven't been seeking first the kingdom of God and, and my righteousness. So why are you asking about that? You know my will. Seek me first. Kind of feels like you're seeking me third. Oh, okay. 
So I repent. I go to God and say, God, I want to seek you first. God, here's some areas of my life where I've not been doing your will. I'm confessing. I'm repenting. Okay, now I'm going back to him and say, okay, God, I want to I walk hand in hand with you on what I should do now here. And I think that is the way to go about it. It's this idea of give us this day our daily bread. It's this idea of like, okay, God, I want to hear now your voice in these small things because I, I, my heart is, has been to seek out and to do the things you've already made known. And now I can seek you. Should I go here or go there? Here's why. Um, there's a few th- thoughts that come with this. And I think this is so important. I hear a lot of people, and even our church, go, you know what? The door was open, so I took it. I'm like, I don't know if that's God's will always. We gotta be really careful. Just because there's an open door, this open door mentality of God's will is not always biblical. We gotta be really careful of that. Paul says this, I, I love this, in uh, 1 Corinthians 16. Paul says to the Corinthians, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Love it. I wanna hang out if the Lord permits. He says, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has been opened to me and there are many adversaries. So here's an instance where Paul goes, yes, there is a door that's open to me, and I'm going to stay here for that. Awesome. That's great. And that sometimes that might be God's will. There's an open door. Good. But notice this, this open door came with many adversaries. This open door was not like, well, it's, it's open, meaning it was so easy. Sometimes open might mean it's going to be really hard. It's like, I'd like to come to you. I'm going to stay here. It's going to be really hard, but i got to do it. There's other times in the book of Acts where we see this idea of they're praying for God's will. They're praying, God, who should we send? And the Holy Spirit in Acts 13 is like, separate to me Paul and Barnabas for the work I have for them. And I love it. There's a time and place to seek God on his specific will. But again, please hear me out. Sometimes we want God's specific will, but we're not doing his general will. So before you ask for a specific will, should I go there, move there, do that? I would say be obedient first and foremost to his general will that he already gives us in Scripture. And this idea that Paul is now, here's what Paul's praying for. So this is beautiful, though. Paul's like, guys, I want you to grow in the knowledge of his will. So yes, you're bearing fruit. Yes, you're loving him. But now seek him out on those day-to-day life decisions. And I'll say this, church, what a beautiful thing if you don't think, well, it's okay. I've been walking with the Lord for 20, 30, 40 years now, Josiah. I don't really seek the will of God like I used to. No, that's dangerous. Go back to seeking his will like you would be like a child, like that high school, college age. Like, what should I do? Go back to just like, I need to seek the face of God and get his direction. It says this in the book of Acts 16. Acts 16, it says, when they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, and when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night, and a man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Here's an example where Paul and Silas, different guys, were going, I want to go into this region, Tur- this, par- this region of Turkey, Asia is what they call it. I want to go into this region. I want to preach the gospel. And God's like, no, you're not allowed to. No, no, you're not going to go there. So they're seeking God. God is saying no. And they're like, what the heck, God? Don't you want me to get the gospel out in this way? And then he has a vision of this man from Macedonia, which we get the book of Philippians from. He has this vision, come, come down to Macedonia, which is Philippi area. And the whole book of Philippians, the whole church being birthed, is from this man having this vision. The reason, I love this because God's like, Paul, you, you, I know you're, you think you're like, this, this is good. Getting the gospel out or doing this good thing for me, great. But no, no, seek me. Paul has this vision, come to Macedonia, he does in God. That's the first time the gospel went into the Western continent, into uh, modern-day Greece, which is the West. Not Asia, but it went West. My, my point of bringing this up is you still have to seek the face of God, the will of God, even if you've been walking through 20, 30, 40 years. Here's the thing, church, I love it. You're growing, you're bearing fruit. I want to see you grow in the will of God. Don't settle for simple definitions of the door was open. That might not be the Lord. It might be the Lord, it might not be. Pray over it still. 
but there's an effective door for me here. Okay, seek God's face on that. Maybe God will give you a dream or a vision. Like, let God bring clarity to that. Seek it out with other believers. Make sure you're doing the general will of God before you ask for the specific will of God. Who cares about where to move or who to date if you're not obeying him and his will for you and what he's already described? Don't get out of order. Yes? I'm going to get off that. Okay. He says this, to grow in the will of God, to walk worthy that pleases him, to bear fruit, increase the knowledge, strengthen with his power. He says this, and we'll read verse 12. He says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. Do you remember when John the Baptist, you guys, sees Jesus, and he goes, I'm not worthy. He's essentially, I'm not qualified to even take off his sandals. I can't even loosen his sandal strap. John the Baptist, this is crazy. Jesus called John the Baptist the greatest person to ever be born from a woman. Okay, if we're debating right now, who's the greatest person who ever lived? According to Jesus, it's John the Baptist. That's amazing. So Jesus like, yo, that guy, greatest person ever born. Like, okay, that kind of settles the debate. Who's the greatest person ever born, right, from a woman in that way? And then John says, but I'm not even qualified or worthy to take off his sandal. This idea of qualified is fascinating to me because it kind of carries out that idea that John says, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. And here's what the gospel says. You are worthy in Christ. And on one hand, I'm not qualified to even serve Jesus or to even take off his seat. I'm not even qualified. Of course I'm not. But because of what Jesus has done for me, what he's done for you, I am qualified. I'm worthy because of his work. Not Josiah, but Jesus Christ in me. And he says this beautiful phrase that you are qualified to share in the inheritance with the saints in the light. What you have in Jesus is so profound. I don't know if we fully get it. And I just want to end with this verse. It's honestly an expression of worship, of praise, of the gospel. And that's why I want to end with worship today. But look at verse 13, how he closes out. He says this, He, Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the gospel. At one point in time, you are part of the domain of darkness, meaning Satan's, Satan's world and rule. He, he ruled this world. He's the little g God of this world according to 2 Corinthians. Jesus has redeemed you, bought us, into and brought us into his kingdom. It's unbelievable because you actually look at this word redeem and this idea, it does communicate like you were a slave to Satan. And Jesus is like, I bought you, you're mine, you're not a slave, and I've set you free, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And there's this beautiful idea of like you were once a part of that kingdom of darkness, but now you're part of the kingdom of the Son of his love. And that Son of his love, that phrase of just the Father saying from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my Son whom I love. Just this idea of like we're a part of something so much better in Jesus. And he says the redemption, the forgiveness of your sins. The gospel is so simple. The greatest need you and I have had and have is the forgiveness of sins. I could never be standing before God holy and blameless unless my sins were paid for, unless my sins were forgiven, and that happened by the blood of Jesus. You know, it's interesting when he talks about this blood, the blood of Jesus. Sometimes Christians kind of use it like we plead the blood, and we use it in a phrase. You're like, what do they even mean? This sounds kind of weird. It's just saying, I'm showing God the receipt. God, your son paid my debt. I'm pleading the blood, meaning I'm just talking about the receipt that you've given me. It's been paid for. Your blood was shed. My sins are forgiven. I can have, I'm now part of a new kingdom. 
this world is not my home. I have another home. I'm made for another home. It is in heaven. Don't get confused. Church, don't get confused. This is not all there is to life. This is not your primary home. This is great. Make the most of it. Live for Jesus. Yes, like it's okay to have a career and job and try to do it. All those things are great, but don't miss out on the fact that you are built and made for another place and another person. Jesus is the person and heaven is the place. And this idea of heaven being like, yes, this is my eternal home where God will meet the deepest needs of my heart that this home could never fulfill. And I want to say this, you are brought into that by the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Let me say this. Paul's like, mature in Jesus, don't stop maturing in Jesus. There's so much more. Hey, the gospel is not the diving board to the pool. The gospel is the pool. Don't forget, don't lose sight. Make this about Jesus. Can we just end our time? Because I'm like, I don't want to just do small group thing and sign up thing. I want to end by just saying, thank you, Jesus, for the blood. Thank you for the fact that you have rescued me, saved me. You bought me at a price, and the price was your body and your blood. Thank you, Jesus. So can we just worship Jesus? Can we now respond? Can you take a second, bow your head? I just want to, you know, close your eyes, get along with Jesus, and let's just say, Jesus, thank you for what you've done. So, Father, that is our desire right now is to say thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the beautiful fact that we were once a part of a kingdom that would fade, corrupt, end, but Jesus, your kingdom has no end. Jesus, you brought us into your marvelous light. Lord, we just want to say thank you. We're just reminded at the beginning of service and even now of just all of heaven, everyone gathered around the throne. Jesus, you are the true and rightful king, you are the lamb who is worthy to open the scroll. Jesus, you paid our debt. We just want to say thank you. God, I just ask for everyone in this place, if they've not yet believed or received on you, Jesus, that they would do so, that they would know that it's already been paid for, that we look back in faith at the cross. So we just want to say thank you, Jesus, in your precious name. Why don't you guys just stand really quick? You guys can stand. We're going to worship. But if you would like prayer, myself and other leaders will be up here. We'd love to pray with you. If you'd like to know this Jesus more, we'd love to invite you to know him. But church, listen, you never graduate the gospel. So don't think, okay, cool. This is for someone else. You never graduate that. Let's right now take a moment and just say thank you, Jesus, for the blood. Can we just praise him? Let's do that. Again, we'll be up here for prayer if you need it.